So it is the last session, but we hope it's an interesting topic. We'll be talking about new drugs of abuse. Um, we have no financial disclosures. However, um, this is in any sort of, these are our personal opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the VA or the federal government. Some learning objectives for our talk this afternoon. Explain the pharmacology and toxicology of these new drugs of abuse. And some of them are newer than others. Um, describe the desired and undesired effects of new drugs of abuse. Select and interpret urine drug screens for these new drugs of abuse. So in, in um, an introduction, um, there are some new drugs of abuse emerging and there's some older drugs that are potentially re-emerging. Re Often they're advertised as legal highs and um, attempt to skirt regulations um, with their packaging. Um, so our title of our presentation, Not for Human Consumption, um, we'll revisit later. Um, but a lot of times it's listed on um, bath salts or synthetic cathinones that these are not for human consumption when in fact they truly are. But by marking them as such, they're trying to avoid um, any sort of um, legislation. They're frequently available, easily accessible on the internet or convenience stores. And they're often considered you know, to be described as herbal or safe. Um, but these aren't benign. They do, some do have some significant life-threatening reactions. So to begin, I wanted to discuss crocodile or desomorphine. And the active substance in crocodile is desomorphine. Some street names include crocodile, crocodile, or zombie drug. And it is a synthetic mu opioid agonist similar to heroin. It was actually developed as an alternative to morphine. Um, to try and have something available that had lower potential for abuse and dependence. However, um, that did not turn out to be true. It is considered a Schedule I controlled substance, and it is available from illicit sources. Its history, it was first synthesized in the U.S. in 1932, and again, it was hoping to be an alternative to morphine that had less addiction potential, but again, that didn't um, hold true. It's used commercially in Switzerland and is considered to be a less expensive alternative to heroin in Russia and European countries. And there have been some cases in the United States and several different states. However, the DEA has not confirmed these cases. So kitchen chemistry, the desomorphine could be made very easily in at-home laboratories similar to the process used to make methamphetamines. The chemicals that are needed are relatively cheap you can get them fairly easily. However, they are highly toxic, and you'll hear about that in a little bit. Doesn't require a lot of equipment to do, and it is pretty quick to make these in under an hour. Um, and it's typically made into a suspension that's injected, usually without a filter, and that leads to some pretty nasty side effects. So typically it's made with codeine, um, iodine, and red phosphorus, and then use diluents um, like kerosene, lighter, lighter fluid, um, hydrochloric acid, and there's one more, paint thinner. So it's mixed with some pretty nasty things. It is eight to 10 times more potent than morphine with an onset of action in about one to two minutes that lasts for about one to two hours. And the adverse effects are typical of opioids. Um, in addition to immediate damage to blood vessels, muscles, and bones. At the injection site, you can get tissue necrosis and gangrene. 
and you even can get systemic adverse events like bacteremia, osteomyelitis, meningitis, liver and kidney impairment. And because of all of these horrible things that can happen, it's estimated that the average survival of someone using this is about two years. I have went to the internet to look for a picture of some of the side effects and things that go on with the use of this medicine, but the pictures, I wouldn't recommend looking at them before you eat anything. They are pretty gruesome. In terms of treatment, it's typically treated with supportive care. Since it is a synthetic opioid, you can consider giving naloxone and um, try and treat the symptoms of opioid withdrawal. You could even consider the use of a mixed agonist, antagonist. Um, I think importantly, you want to screen for any sort of infectious disease. And these patients may also need intensive psychiatric care, nutrition evaluations, and even physical and psychiatric rehabilitation. In terms of detection, it is a synthetic opioid, so it would not be expected to be captured by an opiate amino assay, but we would be potentially captured from um, more extensive testing like GCMS. Since codeine is used to make desomorphine with two intermediate steps, there potentially could be some leftover codeine around um, that would potentially be, be detected through morphine on an amino assay. So there's a case report here of a 30-year-old male presenting to St. Louis, Missouri Hospital with pain, swelling, and ulceration of his left thigh. He had previously been injecting heroin for the last seven to eight years, a $300 per day habit. And for the last six or seven months, he was injecting crocodile into his thigh because it was cheaper. And then he had blisters that turned black and then eventually developed a necrotic ulcer. And two months prior to his admission, he actually had increased swelling of his left little finger, which eventually progressed to blisters and then turned black and auto-amputated. He was treated inpatient with intravenous antibiotics and wound care, but eventually left AMA and was lost to follow-up. Moving on to salvia, so I know this, this presentation is titled New Drugs of Abuse, but this one isn't, I guess, necessarily new. It's been being used... Um, by native people in Mexico for a very, very long time, but maybe it's something new that might be coming up in some of our patients. It's an hallucinogen from the plant Salvia divinorum, and the psychoactive component is Salvinorin A. And like I said, it's found in plants that are endemic to Mexico. It was actually used by Mazatec Indians for religious purposes. It is considered to be a traditional remedy for rheumatism, diarrhea, and migraine. Interestingly, it is not listed in the Controlled Substances Act. Some states do have regulatory controls um, towards salvia, um, but many do not. It works primarily through kappa opioid receptor agonism, and there also is some thought that it may also modulate the endocannabinoid system. Some street names, I always love the street names they develop for some of these. Magic Mint, Sally D, Laddie, Lady Sally, um, so about 1.3% um, prevalence rate, most commonly used by young adults, 18 to 25 years of age, and typically used with a co-ingestant like LSD, uh, um, typically used in people who have recently used LSD, ecstasy, heroin, or PCP, and they often report anxiety and depression. It's grown domestically and imported, and so it's available in local shops and online. People um, like to use it for relaxation or getting high. 
Younger people like to use it for fun or boredom. Um, if you're greater than 10, 22, you might be using it for its spiritual effects. Um, in terms of its patterns of use, traditionally it had been used in a tea um, for a spiritual experience by um, Mazatec Indians. You can also chew the leaves um, and you get a rapid onset of, of effect. And then the most intense psychoactive effects are through vaporization or smoking and it leads to similar effects as ketamine and THC. In terms of its pharmacokinetics, it's interesting. There's a significant first-pass metabolism, and it does go through quite a few CYP enzymes, so there is a potential for drug-drug interactions. Onset, like I said, pretty quick, seconds to minutes, and can last for 30 minutes to an hour, depending on the route, with a half-life estimated about 75 minutes. In terms of its effects, um, some positive desired effects you might call or psychedelic-like effects, altered state of consciousness, hallucinations can occur, a floating feeling, increased self-confidence and increased insight. And then there's more negative undesired effects, loss of control, racing thoughts, irritability, agitation, lack of motor coordination, just to name a few. Patients typically do not present for treatment. There is no known antidote, so typically you would just be giving supportive care um, for their symptoms. There is some theoretical use of naloxone because of its activity at opioid receptors, but likely you would need very high doses of naloxone to do any sort of reversal of its effects. In terms of detection, um, it's something that we wouldn't be able to capture on our standard aminoassay drug screens. It would require um, more comprehensive confirmatory type testing with GCMS or LCMS. Um, Kratom, um, interestingly, I had to make some last minute updates to this presentation. We'll get there in a minute. Um, so the active compound is mitragynine, and it's an alkaloid found in a tropical tree that's in Southeast Asia. It has opioid-like properties at lower doses and stimulant-like effects at higher doses. And um, I guess for the next month or so, it might still be available non-prescription as an herbal product on the internet in head shops. And it can be sold as leaves, powder, capsules, extract, and so on. And it can be used by several different routes being smoked, chewed, or you can drink it as a tea. And there's been a fairly rapid increase in calls to U.S. poison control centers in the last five years or so um, in relation to Kratom. So in terms of its legality, um, prior to about a week ago, it was actually, there was no, the DEA said that there was no legitimate medical use and it actually wasn't listed in the Controlled Substances Act. Well, as of November 1st, they um, published in the Federal Register that they were going to be temporarily scheduling it as a Schedule One controlled substance, so a substance that has no medical use. But previously, um, you could buy it as an herbal product, and I've actually come across several patients my pain management practice using it for those properties. Other countries have banned or limited the use of Kratom. It is listed on the FDA poisonous plant database. Some street names include Biak, Biak, Ethong, or Tom. In terms of its uses, it reduces musculoskeletal pain and can also be used to increase energy, appetite, and sexual desire. And it has been used traditionally for the treatment of hypertension, diarrhea, and cough. Now, in more Western countries, it's often a substitute for heroin 
or can be used for the treatment of pain or even to prevent opioid withdrawal. It does touch on multiple receptors. It touches on opioid receptors, serotonin, dopamine, postsynaptic alpha-2, and adenosine receptors. It has a relatively quick onset of action in about five to 10 minutes and lasts for two to five hours. And like I said, I might have said the opposite before. Low doses, one to five grams, are mild stimulant-like effects. And at higher doses, five to 15 grams cause opioid-like effects. And it does inhibit 3A4, 2D6, 1A2, very common CYP enzymes in drug metabolism. So there is a potential for drug-drug interaction. We can expect adverse effects typical of opioids, so our constipation, respiratory depression, and so on. We also can get neurological effects like hallucinations, psychosis, seizures, or agitation. Serious toxicity is, is rare, and it's usually with higher doses of up to 15 grams, and co-ingestants are typically involved. Chronic high doses of 14 to 21 grams per day for up to two weeks can lead to things as serious as jaundice, puritis, and severe hypothyroidism. And there have been some fatalities associated with kratom when it is in the substance krypton, um, which is kratom plus O-desmethyltramadol, which is a metabolite of tramadol. And they found on autopsies pulmonary edema suggesting respiratory depression. In terms of its detection, it's actually not detected by opiate immunoassay. You could capture it on um, liquid chromatography mass spectroscopy. And that's actually how I've actually come across it in some patients is on um, GCMS or LCMS drug testing. Treatment, if um, we need to treat an addiction to it, they may respond opioid replacement therapy since it does work on opioid receptors. In an overdose situation, there is mixed data on the use of naloxone in animal studies. However, risk to benefit seems like you would consider treatment of using naloxone in these patients. And then finally, loperamide. Um, we've been seeing increasing reports of supertherapeutic doses of loperamide and actually led to an FDA um, MedWatch warning, which I'll tell you a little bit more about in a second. So loperamide is actually available over the counter. It, previous to my birth, it was a Schedule five controlled substance um, and inhibits intestinal peristalsis through mu opioid receptors, calcium, calmodulin, and paracellular permeability reduction. And it's typically thought to have a limited abuse potential because there's poor systemic bioavailability, 0.3%, so that's pretty low, mostly just a local effect. Limited CNS penetration, and it does um, get efflux through P glycoprotein efflux pumps. Therapeutic doses, typically in adult patients, um, they wouldn't be using more than four caplets in a 24-hour period. However, when someone is abusing loperamide, they'll use super therapeutic doses 30 to 200 milligrams higher than typical therapeutic doses. And they also use medications that are P-glycoprotein inhibitors to um, overcome the efflux pumps. And loperamide itself inhibits P-glycoprotein, so... Um, you can overcome some of those things that are thought to prevent um, abuse with higher doses. So like I said, there's increasing reports of abuse, a 71% increase in intentional loperamide exposures in the 
between 2011 and 2014. It does have a potential for abuse because it's over-the-counter, it's really cheap, it's accessible, you haven't really heard much about it, there's not a social stigma associated with it, and because of the increasing legislation and regulation with opioids, patients may be turning to alternatives. Reasons for abuse are euphoria and potentially um, to prevent opioid withdrawal. So this was the FDA MedWatch that was released beginning of June, and it was talking about serious heart problems that have been occurring with high doses of patients abusing and misusing loperamide. So when patients are using super therapeutic doses, there have been cases of QTC prolongation, torsades, ventricular arrhythmias, syncope, and cardiac arrest. And like, they, like we mentioned earlier, the drugs are typically taken with other medications to increase its absorption and penetration across the blood-brain barrier. So in the, in the 39 years since its approval, the FDA has received 48 cases of serious heart problems with the use of loperamide, um, and more than half of these have occurred since 2010. In terms of side effects, when you're using it for therapeutic reasons and at therapeutic doses, side effects are usually mild, nausea, constipation, drowsiness, headache. If we were to give naloxone to these patients, it wouldn't typically lead to withdrawal. There have been some serious side effects like toxic megacolon, pancreatitis, or gastroenteritis, but they're usually rare. With super therapeutic doses, can only imagine the amount of constipation these patients have. <laughs> um, we have cardiac dysrhythmias that I mentioned before, and then opioid toxicity, so CNS and respiratory depression. So we wouldn't detect this on a standard drug screen. You may be able to detect it through more um, intensive drug screening means. In terms of treatment, it's really just supportive treating any sort of arrhythmia that's going on. Naloxone is reasonable from animal and human data, and they also are requesting that, that providers who see loperamide abuse and misuse to report it to FDA MedWatch. Um, I could potentially see if these cases continue to increase. Potentially this might be um, a behind-the-counter medication, somewhat like Sudafed or pseudoephedrine. With that, I'll turn it over to Abby. No. Oh, okay, now I hear it. All right, so I'm going to kind of wrap things up with a, a few other uh, new drugs of abuse. I'm going to talk about bath salts and then synthetic uh, cannabinoids. These drugs of abuse really kind of reached their peak a couple years ago, and then their use has kind of fallen off a little bit. And really the, the drugs that Courtney discussed are kind of more the up-and-coming things. Um, but I remember vividly a few years ago in South Florida, bath salts were first in the news when um, I believe it was a homeless man was attacking this other person and he had like superhuman-like strength and the, you know, the police couldn't get him off the, the victim and things like that. So um, this has been a topic of discussion in South Florida, at least where I'm from. I haven't come across any personal encounters in my pain clinic practice but our mental health inpatient pharmacist, this is something that they screen for when patients are admitted to our mental health unit, and they have had a couple cases where they thought that these drugs were being abused. 
So some background on bath salts. It's a novel uh, synthetic stimulant. It's a cathinone derivative. These, medic these drugs are odorless, typically a white, tan, or gray powder or fine crystals. Um, going along with the theme of everything else, they're very cheap. So anywhere from $25 to $75 for a, a 0.5 gram package. They are marketed as a legal high. Again, sold in head shops, the internet, gas stations, things like that. And again, they get away with a lot of this because it's labeled not for human consumption or as plant food when we know that's not their intention at all. And really, they mimic things like MDMA, um, other amphetamines or stimulants, the effects that the patients are going for when they use this. Some street names listed here, Bloom, Ivory. I've heard of Vanilla Sky before. Um, so here's the chemical name of a cathinone listed there for you. These are actual Schedule One substances. Um, a cathinone is a beta keto analog of amphetamine. Um, so they don't have as much of a stimulant effect as amphetamine, but that's basically what, what these drugs are being used for. So they're going for a stimulant effect. Um, cathinones are found in the leaves of the cot plant, which has been chewed in the Middle East traditionally um, for stimulant-like effects in, in the past. So some synthetic cathinones are listed here. It's hard to see that these are bolded. Um, but the MDPV, the methylone, and then the methedronone, or no, no, the, yeah, over on that side, methedrone. Um, those are some of the most common uh, synthetic cathinones that have been found recurrently in patients who are found to have overdosed or had side effects. So in the United States, MDPV was the most common synthetic cathinone that was basically found in patients who had overdosed or were abusing these substances. Um, mephedrone and methylone, they have a lot of effect on serotonin, dopamine, and, nor and uh, norepinephrine, whereas MDPV has minimal serotonin activity and a lot of activity at dopamine and norepinephrine binds tighter to these receptors and with greater affinity than cocaine. So exploring the legality of bath salts, um, they had an emergency scheduling of these three particular substances, the most popular ones in 2011. Again, that's kind of when it was at the peak of the abuse. Um, because then these people are very smart and then chemically alter these substances to kind of skirt the law to turn them into new legal substances, the Synthetic Drug Abuse Prevention Act of 2012 was passed, and so this was a very broad in nature. So basically, it banned any kind of cannabimimetic agent and specific additional hallucinogenic substances, trying to prevent any sort of similar new products that um, these drugs, these developers might come up with. Well, it's interesting. These things take time. I mean, that took almost over a year to kind of for everything to be set in motion and come into law. So these drugs are primarily used in young men, mean age, mid to late 20s, but people can start using these drugs in their teenage years all the way into their 40s. There's even been exposure to young children as young as six years of age. Like I mentioned, the first reports were in 2010, increasing in 2011 and somewhat peaking in 2012. Even students in middle school and early high school have reported use. Um, so it's most commonly found in the South and the Midwest, but as you can see, it's, not, it's something that's been abused or found nationwide. So when people are abusing synthetic cathinones or bath salts, they're reporting daily to episodic use. Um, it's typically most often snorted or ingested orally, 
or there's other ways to ingest this. So bombing is basically putting the substance in a cigarette paper and then swallowing it. Keying is dipping a key into the powder-like substance and then snorting the powder off of, off of the key. So, and when these people are having these sessions where they're using it over and over again, oftentimes they're combining different substances or they're using different routes of administration repeatedly. And it's also been found to be used in combination with other illicit drugs or even other uh, prescription medications potentially. We don't really have any data on purity. Generally it's used or sold in you know, one milligram, one gram or grams. Um, redosing during a session is common like I mentioned. Um, and MDPV like I mentioned was the one that's most commonly or was the most common substance found here in the United States. People would take it anywhere from five to 30 milligrams per ingestion and then over 200 milligrams in a total session. And really they combined it with other substances with the goal of increasing the desired effects and minimizing the undesired effects. So absorption is mostly through the oral mucosa, but then there can be secondary absorption through the stomach and the small intestine. Um, it's distributed across the blood-brain barrier. Um, it's metabolized extensively through phase one and phase two, as well as through the SIP enzyme system. So then there are concerns potentially if these people are abusing prescription drugs or other illicit substances, that there's potential interactions there, and it's eliminated through the urine. So like I mentioned, the, the pharmacokinetics, the onset is going to depend on how the person decides to abuse or misuse the drug. So MDPV, the onset is anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes, and then the duration can last anywhere from six to eight hours. So the other thought is that these drugs may be more at risk for abuse or risk of overdose because it can take so long for the drug to kind of take its effect. So then people will end up taking multiple doses and then by the time that they have the effects, they've taken multiple doses and there are more risk for bad things to happen. So when someone's taking bath salts, what are they looking for? Well, they want to feel more sociable, have more energy, improve libido or sexual performance better capacity at work, believe it or not, uh, euphoria, as well as empathy. Some of the most common presenting symptoms that you might notice, I'm not going to list them off here, but just kind of highlight some of the most unique ones. Uh, hyperreflexia, hypertension, hyperthermia, uh, MI, palpitations, respiratory distress, seizures, tachycardia, as well as hyponatremia. And then the neuropsychiatric effects. So these are some of the ones that you hear about in the news, uh, the news reports. So aggression, agitation, anxiety, combative behavior, almost like superhuman-like powers or strength, um, hallucinations, paranoia, psychosis, suicidal thoughts. So pretty significant. Um, patients may need to be hospitalized and treated emergently. emergently. Some of these patients even end up in the ICU because of, the, of what the drugs do to them. So decreased renal function, acidosis, um, elevated creatinine kinase or troponins, EKG changes, leukocytosis, increased LFTs or electrolyte abnormalities. They're not detected via routine toxicology tests and they could lead to a potential false positive in a methamphetamine screen. Um, an MDPV specifically can lead to a false positive on a PCP screen. But really, you're going to have to get blood, urine, or stomach contents uh, samples and then have them sent for either GCMS or LCMS testing to know for sure if these substances are viable. 
And uh, like I mentioned, depending on your hospital's protocol, like our mental health unit decided to add a synthetic cathinone um, panel to their urine drug tox screen workup for when someone's admitted to the unit. The only problem is those results take about a week to come back. So it's not going to help you in the acute time. In the treatment of the intoxication, there is no antidote. You're mostly providing supportive care, so cooling, restraints, fluid restric restriction, and hypertonic saline. Pharmacotherapy-wise, you could treat with benzodiazepines, antipsychotics, or propofol. And then definitely refer the patient for education and likely addiction treatment. And then for dependence and withdrawal, uh, tolerance may occur following repeated dosing. Dependence is less likely than if the patient was using amphetamines or cocaine. Um, but with chronic high doses, that's more of a concern that the patient is dependent. Withdrawal symptoms can include depression, anhedonia, anxiety, sleep disorders, or cravings. So kind of generalized, nothing too specific. The patient would kind of have to admit to you that they're going through withdrawal after abusing these substances. So Flocka, this has also been in the news recently. This is a type of, a specific type of, of a synthetic cathinone. So it's an alpha PVP or gravel. So it actually looks like, like a white or a tan gravel. And the pictures I've seen is like these gravel pieces in like a clear gelatin capsule. So unfortunately, again, in South Florida a couple weeks ago, there was a, a young college student who was home, and he, the thought is that he unprovokedly attacked these two neighbors of his who were sitting in their garage and ended up killing them. And, um, you know, he had superhuman strength. He was making these growling noises. He just didn't seem to be, you know, his presentation was very strange. So as far as I know, they haven't released what the results of his toxicology screen were, but they were discussing potentially that this, he was on a, a substance such as Plaka. So it's temporarily been listed as a Schedule One substance. It's similar in structure to a cathinone. And the effects are excitation, delirium, hyperstimulation, paranoia, hallucination, kidney damage, and failure to the point where one dose could potentially cause this and you know, the patient's over, done with. Uh, aggression, self-injury, suicidal tendencies, and heart attacks have also been found. OK, so then moving on to synthetic cannabinoids, or spice. These are also known as fragrance, potpourri, herbal incense, or K2. So again, these substances are kind of sold as like herbal products or things like potpourri labeled not for human consumption when we know that that's exactly what their intention is for. Many of them are listed as a Schedule One controlled substance. They're actually synthesized in a lab and then dissolved in solvent. And then they're sprayed onto a plant material and allowed to evaporate or dry. And then they're packaged as the loose leaves or rolled. And then they're available or sold in head shops, convenience stores, and over the internet. Again, very cheap, 30, $30 to $50 for a three gram bag. So typically, patients will smoke these products um, used by white males in their teens and their 20s. And 80% of K2 users have used marijuana at least once. So this is very interesting. So the synthetic cannabinoids, or spice, they're full agonists at the cannabinoid CB1 receptor and the cannabinoid 2 or CB2 receptor, which are located throughout the body, compared to THC, which is just a partial agonist. So these drugs are even more powerful than if the patient was using regular marijuana. Their activity at CB1 receptors causes the release of inhibitory and excitatory neurotransmitters, which then result in the CNS effects. 
The onset could be anywhere from minutes to hours, varies by product, the amount, and what route of administration they're using, and then the effects can last anywhere from one to three hours. They're hepatically uh, metabolized via the CYP enzymes and are excreted in the urine. So when someone's using spice or similar products, what are they looking for? They want to have increased energy, focus and creativity, euphoria, a dreamlike state, perhaps relaxation uh, or anxiety relief, sensory perception or motor alterations, and appetite stimulation. It's kind of similar to what you would see if somebody was looking to use THC or marijuana. So what are the more common undesired effects? Anxiety, agitation, irritability, hallucinations, tachycardia. More, some of the more severe symptoms would be psychosis, seizures, acute kidney injury, rhabdomyolysis, even death, or suicidal ideation. Again, because these drugs are much more powerful than your typical marijuana or THC. Withdrawal syndrome can last for a few days. Symptoms can include headaches, insomnia, anxiety, restlessness, irritability, somatic pain, coughing or shortness of breath, and even nausea. There is no antidote for uh, spice uh, withdrawal or overuse. It's really supportive care and monitoring. So again, some of the same medications we keep mentioning in supportive care. So IV fluids, benzodiazepines, antipsychotics, antiemetics. You really don't really need to be intubated or things like that. And then you really want to consider co-ingestants. So what other products might somebody be using if they're using this type of product? So spice is not detected via the normal THC immunoassay. Rapid tests are available but not widely used. So again, you'd be looking at LCMS or GCMS testing to know for sure if somebody was using this type of substance. And like the, the long-term potential implications of using things like spice, they're really using the data that's come out in terms of long-term marijuana use to determine like what are the potential consequences of abusing and misusing these types of substances. And finally, I'm going to talk about a group of medications or substances called piperazines. So they're used for their stimulant and hallucinogenic effects. They mimic MDMA or ecstasy, also known as molly or party pills. They were derived from two main groups, uh, BZP and 1-phenylpiperazine. They were used in the 1990s for leg as legal ecstasy. So again, this has kind of gone through the legal process somewhat. So uh, in 2002, some of them were added to a temporary list of Schedule I substances. And then BZP was permanently added to as a Schedule I substance in 2004. Some individual states have legislation, however, near, mostly all of these other products remain legal. Again, young adults are found to be using or abusing these substances. 18% report regular use, 90% report co-ingestion. So it's really tricky when these people present for help or in the ER, it's really not just the one substance. You're trying to figure out what other things are they using. Typically used orally via capsule, pill, tablet, or powder form. Less common routes include injection, smoking, or mixing it in drinks. The dose for BZP is 75 to 250 milligrams, and then for TFMPP, anywhere from 5 to 100 milligrams. It's available on the internet and sold for 10 to $60 per package. So it works also, again, on these kind of the same neurotransmitters as the other substances we've discussed, looking at working on dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine, and then inhibiting the reuptake of these substances. 
Much weaker effects, 10 times weaker effects compared to amphetamine use. At lower doses, you're going to have stimulant effects, whereas at higher doses, you're going to have hallucinogenic type effects. It's rapidly absorbed. Uh, distribution, um, delayed peak effect at anywhere from 75 to 90 minutes. Uh, metabolized, depending on the product, either minimally or through SIP enzymes as well and then eliminated through the urine. And the effects can last for quite long, six to eight hours. And this is another substance where you're concerned about the risk of overdose because of how long it takes for the drug to take effect. So 75 to 90 minutes before the patient experiences the peak effect. So how many doses do they end up taking waiting for that to happen? Um, the effects are usually mild and don't require medical treatment. So agitation, insomnia, headache, or nausea where some of the neuropsychiatric effects may be more distressing. So again, the anxiety, confusion, paranoia, short, temp short temper, auditory hallucination or seizures occur in one out of five patients. Cardiovascular effects are what's often going to make them require medical attention. And then there's other side effects uh, listed there for you. The most kind of serious are nephrotoxicity, disseminated intravascular coagulation, but fatalities are really not that common. Treatment is, again, supportive care, EKG and electrolyte monitoring. For agitation and seizures, you want to use benzodiazepines. They don't recommend antipsychotics or at least using antipsychotics very carefully because those can affect the thermoregulation of the body. And some of these patients, when they've, they've reported kind of coming off of it, this very strange, it's either a very warm or a very cool sensation during like the withdrawal period. So you don't want to uh, you know, alter the body's thermoregulation. Severe hypertension is also treated as needed. There is no immunoassay available, so again, GCMS or LCMS testing would be what you would go to, but BZP, the particular substance, may cause a false positive for the, immuno, the amphetamine immunoassay. So in conclusion, but we're not done yet because we're going to ask you some questions, even though this is the last talk of the, of the conference. So all of these substances, the theme of it is, is that these people are trying to change these substances. As soon as they become illegal, they're altering it to kind of skirt around the law. And that's something I think that the FDA has tried to pick up and be more aggressive with addressing, make the laws more broader to cover these types of things. They're difficult to detect with standard urine drug testing. So basically, you could order an immunoassay. But it's really not going to be detected on those, so then if you send for confirmation testing or order GCMS or LCMS testing at baseline, you would have your results. The limiting factor, from at least at my institution, is that those results can take a week to come back. Uh, these substances are not necessarily safe and may cause severe reactions, and patients may seek treatment, which is typically supportive care. And of course, referral and education for substance abuse treatment would be the most appropriate thing. All right, so the first audience response question. BT is a 55-year-old male who presents to the emergency room with signs of opioid withdrawal and necrotic lesions on his left arm. A UDS is obtained with the following results. Oh, it didn't show. I think it was all neg, no. No, they're supposed to guess the results on this one. After providing the sample, he admits to using crocodile. What would you expect his UDS results to be, assuming that this is the only substance he's using? So he's only using crocodile. The parent compound or the, the active substance is desomorphine. So would it be A, positive for opiates, B, positive for amphetamines, C, positive for oxycodone, or D, negative for all substances? D? Very good. 
or sharper on top of it. Uh, DK is a 61-year-old male on tramadol, 50 milligrams TID PRN for chronic low back pain, which provides analgesic and functional benefit. The patient states that he recently started drinking Kratom tea. What would you expect on an immunoassay drugs of abuse UDS panel to show? So consider the tramadol as well as the Kratom tea. A, positive for opiates, B, positive for oxycodone, C, positive for PCP, or D, negative for all substances? Say it louder, I can't hear you. D? Okay. Negative for all substances, exactly. So Kratom wouldn't be detected on a normal immunoassay, and then tramadol, because it's a synthetic opioid, is not detected via the opiate immunoassay either. And finally, audience response question number three. JB is a 48-year-old male with opioid use disorder who presents to the behavioral unit for an appointment to renew his buprenorphine, naloxone, or suboxone. The patient provides a UDS before being seen by the physician. His UDS results come back with those on the side there. He denies using methamphetamines or PCP. So you can see his results are negative for all substances, but positive for PCP and positive for amphetamines. What substances might explain his results? Would it be A, bath salts, B, salvia, C, spice, or D, piperazines? I have any brave souls. What'd you say? A. A, okay, I have A that says bath salts. Anybody else? D, okay, A or D. So the answer is A, bath salts. Um, so MDPV can be, de can be detected as potentially PCP, and then um, ephedronone, I believe it was, is the other one that can be detected as a methamphetamine or cross-react. And with that, we're finished with the conference, but we'll take any questions. Thank you for your attention.